You are listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I am your host, Peter Horgan. On this podcast, I'll be chatting with folks who care deeply about the climbing environment to discuss the advocacy work that's happening beyond the crag. My aim is to connect more climbers to the important work that these advocates are doing day in and day out. From the small local crags to the nation's iconic landscapes and to the offices of our nation's capital, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. This show is brought to you in partnership with Access Fund. Since 1991, Access Fund has been keeping the crags, boulders, and alpine environments around the country conserved and cared for. Support Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org and by supporting your local climbing organization. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 6 of the Climbing Advocate Podcast. Again, I am your host, Peter Horgan. For this episode, my guest was Access Fund's Policy Director, Jason Keith. I met Jason last year at Access Fund's Annual Advocate Summit in New York, and we sat on a panel together talking about public land success stories, and since then, there's been a lot happening in the realm of public lands recently, and I wanted to get him on the show for this episode. More specifically, I wanted Jason to shed some light on the public lands package that was passed earlier in March. Uh, This package included a number of different things, such as the reauthorization of the Land and Water Conservation Fund, um, many new miles of wild and scenic rivers, among many, many other things. But perhaps the biggest piece of that package for our sake as climbers was the passing of the Emory County Public Lands Management Act. He was heavily involved in advocating for this act and provided a lot of great great info here for it. Then we segued into bolting in wilderness, which has been a contentious topic, of course, for a very, very long time. And we concluded the episode discussing the current affairs surrounding Bears Ears National Monument. So with that being said, this made for quite a long episode. It clocked in at almost an hour and a half, and it was definitely my longest one yet. So I decided to break this one up into two parts so you all can take some time to digest everything Jason spoke about. And this episode here, part one, will focus on the Emory County bill and Bolting in Wilderness. And then next week, I'll put out the second part uh, about Bears Ears. So without any further delay, please enjoy part one, my conversation with Access Fund's policy director, Jason Keith. All right, Jason. Well, thank you so much for joining me. On, uh, on episode six, we've made it a half dozen. So excited to have you here. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. So much has been happening recently in public land world and public land policy. I figured you'd be a perfect guest for this month to uh, give us a little more detail on what was happening in sure. D.C. recently. So super excited to have you. Before we really jump into it, I'd like to get a little background on yourself, um, your, some of your climbing history at your own little business there. You're in Moab, correct? I'm based in Moab, yeah. Yeah, so you have your own little business there. You also work for the Access Fund, obviously. Yep. So um, when did you start climbing? How long have you been climbing for? When? Where did you start climbing? Uh, what kind of climber are you? Well, I grew up in Washington State, and my dad was a uh, volcano climber, so kind of I started just getting dragged up volcanoes and and uh, trudging around the North Cascades, and he taught me sort of the basics of climbing then. Kind of fun fact, I learned to use an ice axe on Mount Rainier, or Mount St. Helens, rather, before it blew its top. Nice. Um, and so, kind of grew up there. Um, I still spend part of my year up there. I've got a cabin up in the North Cascades. That's kind of my happy place up there. That's awesome. And um, 
but I left there in the in the early '80s and moved to Jackson Hole, and that's really where I really started climbing uh, quite a bit and spent a lot of years um, trudging up and down the Tetons and doing kind of the sort of climbing buns bum circuit in the 80s and late 80s from you know down here in Canyonlands over to Red Rocks Yosemite and then back to to Jackson and kind of did that that circuit for a bunch of years ended up started guiding and uh, for Jackson Hole Mountain Guides and was a professional mountain guide with them off and on for oh about 10 years and did a, a lot of international guiding in the Alps and South America and over in Nepal and um so I guess I kind of like all kinds of climbing. I, I love the climb around here in the desert, Indian Creek and desert towers and that kind of thing. But sort of probably my favorite is long alpine climbing up in up in the mountains and uh, like to get around glaciated terrain, that kind of thing. So a little odd to be here in Moab since that's my favorite kind of climbing. But I do get I do get out of here every once in a while, especially when it heats up. Yeah, for sure. That's a nice refuge to have when it heats up to get up north. <clears throat> Yeah, it's a very special area to me. Indian Creek's my favorite favorite crag by far. And awesome. it's the greater yeah, Moab area. The pure splitter crack climbing is definitely where I find my happy place for sure. And I'm just a few hours away from away from Moab, so it's a perfect spot right. for me. Um, in addition to your just personal climbing, um, you got your own little business, a uh, little nonprofit called Public Land Solutions. Mm -hmm. what's, uh, what's your work with that entail? Well... Maybe before that, it'd be an easy way to explain how that sort of came about is I, you know, I was a mountain guide for a bunch of years, um, decided to go to law school and practice water law for a while in Colorado. And then this, I didn't like being a lawyer. And uh, this position came up at the Access Fund in 2000, 2001. And I became the policy director for the Access Fund, which really just means I do a lot of government affairs work in D.C., lobbying the Hill, meeting with with um, federal land managers, the Forest Service, Park Service, BLM, that sort of thing, but also um, working on analyzing, commenting on land use plans all around the country from Yosemite to New River Gorge and Waco tanks and everywhere in between. And so I'd been in, in this um, in a policy world, really being sort of an advocate for, for the Access Fund and, and for climbers nationally. And through that experience, developed the what's called the Outdoor Alliance, which is a coalition um, of outdoor recreation groups that share, generally share a common mission of access and conservation of the environment in which those activities occur, right? And so that really broadened the Access Fund's ability to um, affect change on policy with legislators or with um, you know, regulators, policymakers. And um, I came in touch with a lot of these other folks in the outdoor recreation community, people like, you know, at American Whitewater and Winter Wildlands Alliance and International Bicycling Association. And all of those folks became a really great sort of brain trust um, in terms of policy and, and public land issues and being able to join our voices um, with a lot of those uh, um, organizations really dramatically increased the um, the influence of the access funds ability to to work on a lot of these issues, right? Mm -hmm. And and sort of related to um, that outdoor alliance effort was were other groups like outdoor industry association that was coming at it from the economic angle, obviously, right? And then 
folks like um, the Conservation Alliance, um, bringing the business voice to specific conservation campaigns. And what I realized with, um, with a friend of mine in Moab here that was doing similar policy work for International Bicycling Association, her name's Ashley Kornblatt, we realized that there wasn't sort of this this effort at the local level to um, to organize local businesses on public lands issues. So many businesses, like we use Moab for an example, the hotel on Main Street, all their clients are coming here because they're using the public lands, right? They, mm -hmm. They're not here to go golfing, most of them. <laughs> and, uh, and so it, it's in that business's interest to understand um, big decisions affecting what's going, out on, going on out there on the public lands, right? And, and, so what we do at Public Land Solutions is we, we, we educate a lot of these businesses that are just too busy, you know, making payroll, running a business to really understand the minutia and weird nerdiness of public lands policy. <laughs> we educate them on the things that matter to their opportunities for them to engage with policymakers. So that might be the local county commissioner or it might be um, the governor's office or it might be their federal legislators in D.C., um, and so we do that through a whole range of um, means. A lot of them are, you know, media opportunities, um, provide uh, opportunities for writing op-eds, connect them with, with publications, uh, newspapers, that sort of thing. Or a lot of times we'll um, take them to D.C. And, and lobby with these outdoor businesses. And that's really powerful because um, if a legislator sees a constituent come in that that's a job creator and they're talking about outdoor recreation and actually the economy, that's a pretty unique message. Yeah, and, of course. Um, so I spend, you know, a lot of my time at public land solutions, but I still work, um, work, work with access fund a fair amount. And I also work with the American mountain guides association with, uh, with their policy director over there, a guy named Matt Wade and, um, work on issues um, specific to the outfitting community mm -hmm. nationally. Yeah, in his position, sidetrack a little bit, that's a pretty new position for the AMGA, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's been about two years now. They've, you know, in the past they've engaged in government affairs work, but typically, you know, on a sort of ad hoc basis with the executive director or with their board members mm -hmm. or on an issue-by-issue issue level. But Matt's been really great about really trying to organize this government affairs program and being really smart about how to to use resources to... Uh, to affect change for that particular community. And in fact, right now there's, um, there's a um, outfitter permitting bill uh, that's been considered in Congress uh, that uh, hopefully will move the needle for, for mountain guides nationally and other outfitters on public lands. Is that the recreation, not red tape? That's, that's one of them, but there's another bill that's more specific called, uh, well, it's, it, the name has been changed now. I think it's going to be called the SOAR Act, S-O-A-R okay. Act, mm -hmm. and it really is going to, it's going to do a whole range of things for mountain guides, things, you know, like getting rid of antiquated red tape that doesn't make any sense anymore, if it ever did, and <laughs> um, streamlining permitting processes, being smart about pooling user days, uh, allowing for cross-jurisdictional permitting so you don't have to have three permits if just because you walk across a quarter mile of parkland before you get to the forest or, you know, that kind of thing. Sure, sure. Um, and, it'll, and it'll really, you know, and other just kind of obvious things like online permitting, app, permit applications, and that kind of stuff, so that um, guides and outfitters are not spending all their time just dealing with paperwork. There's some of those reforms in that recreation, not red tape bill also. Mm -hmm. 
but there were sort of hands of package in this other legislation. Cong uh, Senator Heinrich from New Mexico is the is sort of the leader in a lot of ways on that. Gotcha. Okay. Well, <clears throat> that's a pretty good segue. We're on the topic of acts. Let's talk about this most recent one that was signed mm -hmm. by the president a week ago. Yeah. Um, S-47, otherwise more commonly known as the Natural Resources Management Act. Could you give us a little bit of history on uh, how this bill or, or how this act originated, uh, how it got started? I mean, it's, it was a package of a lot of awesome things all grouped together. Um, were these all separate but prior and then they just decided to put them all together and, and pass it through? How did this thing get started? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's also been actually renamed the John D. Dingle Jr. Conservation Management and Recreation Act. So I did see a, that, yeah. There's a mouthful <laughs> for you. Um, and there's over 100 bills in this package. And um, so it's really, uh, in some ways, miraculous that this thing actually even happened. I mean, so the way that these, what are called omnibus, package, omnibus bills, where mm -hmm. there's a big compilation of bills that have been put together a lot of you know we can get into the weeds really deep here real fast but Go for it. essentially it's what happens typically is you know throughout any two-year congress a lot of bills be uh introduced and they'll get hearings and then for whatever reason they just never um get a floor time to get a vote or get out of committee and get a vote but there's always a rush at the end of a Congress where folks are trying to get stuff done. And for good or ill, a lot of times what happens is they get packaged together. So if you're a senator from Oklahoma and you got a bill, but um, the senator from New Mexico opposes that bill, but the senator from New Mexico also has a bill that he wants to introduce. I mean, basically, it's like everybody gets skin in the game and then people that oppose these things start falling away. Mm -hmm. So it's not a really great way to do policy if there's bad stuff out there, but it's also a good way to get things done, especially at the end of a Congress, because um, opposition to stuff out of your state, if you're a congressman or woman, um, that, that disappears because you're motivated to get your particular bill done. Right. Right. Um, it's not the greatest analogy, but I sort of think of it as sort of like the military industrial complex where you get a plant in every congressional district in the country and suddenly everybody's for it. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a similar kind of thing. If everybody's got a bill in this package, then it's like a pass. And in fact, it did pass overwhelmingly, right? Yeah. Um, like that, that's a question I had. I mean, it passed 92 to 8 in a Republican majority Senate. And yeah. then. 363 to 62 in a Democratic House. I mean, what made this thing so attractive to both sides of the aisle? Well, there were bills from both um, from both sides, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I'm going to forget the name, but uh, Senator Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, who chairs the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, she had a, a bill in this um, that she wanted to have passed, right? Mm -hmm. And so... It's really up to the chairs of these committees what they allow in and what they don't allow in yeah. um, for these packages. They have to have had hearings, right, and have been considered and voted on out of committee. Um, the normal rule, they can suspend some of these rules but um, for it to get in the package. But if your bill has had a hearing, um, it could be considered in the bill. And, it was, and so Lisa Murkowski had her Alaska bill, and then there were other bills like the one that we like so much in Emory County, that was a Republican bill, 
Right? But then there were a lot of Democrat bills in, in there too. You know, Cantwell had some bills up in Washington State, another one that we really like from a climate perspective, the Mantau Headwaters mm -hmm. um, Protection Act. And there was a um, another bill that created a heritage area on the west side um, that uh, sort of protects a lot of areas where there's climate also. And um, so you, if you just get enough people from all sides of the political spectrum in the game um, that have a stake in it, then you're more likely to, at the end of a Congress, when all everybody's scrambling to get something done at the last minute, you're more likely to get your thing in the in the package. Now, what was amazing was this thing came up in December uh, as a package, and there was only like 40 to 50 bills in there then. Mm -hmm. And then um, what's even, it's sort of like, you know, Frankenstein, or maybe it's more like the Phoenix rising from the ashes or something. <laughs> but in December, when the new Congress came in, the fact that this package was still viable, I mean, typically you just erase like Etch-a-Sketch, the, the thing, erase <laughs> everything and start over, right, for a new Congress. Yep. But there was motivation. There were some other really high-profile things in here, like the Land and Water Conservation Fund that also was bipartisan. Mm -hmm. um, but this thing suddenly ballooned to over 100 different bills from all over the country. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, it, the Senate passed it, and the House passed it, and then the President signed it, and it's the law of the land now. Bam, done really amazing yeah and so yeah let me let me just raise a couple of points in here this and so i've been doing this stuff since uh 2001 and i think this is by far the biggest win for climbers ever in in a legislative sense mm -hmm. i mean you could parse out other odds and ends and other local things but um the reason is there was a lot of good stuff in here, like Land and Water Conservation Fund, the Metau Headwaters, some of these other, you know, Oregon Mountains in New Mexico. But this Emory County bill is a really important thing for climbers. And um, I really need to give kudos to the staff of Congressman Chris, who is my congressman here, who represents all of southeastern Utah and up into sort of the Provo area. And, and um, former Senator Orrin Hatch, who were really open to, I mean, let me even go back a couple more steps. So the Emory bill was really um, part of a much larger initiative called the Public Land Initiative that was happening a few years ago. Yes. Mm -hmm. Where Congressman Bishop uh, and and a few others were trying to do a multi-county bill um, for a number of counties in eastern Utah, basically from like the Wyoming border all the way down to the Arizona border, all the counties in there, San Juan County, Grand County, around Moab, and a lot of others. Emory County was part of that. And that was really, that was in, in a way um, the lead up to Bears Ears, and I can get to that in a minute, but um, there was a ton of work that was done during the PLI process, and it never, never actually even got a vote, never passed Congress. But the Emory County piece had been the one that had been worked on for so long um, and had been gone through many iterations by the county council there and um, had a lot of different pieces related to recreation and wilderness conservation, wild and scenic rivers, you know, all the things we heard about. But the county wanted also certainty on sort of their travel management stuff. They wanted to make sure they could still do some resource extraction in different places. So that was a pretty well-developed build the PLI thing, but that whole thing crashed, right? Right. Um, right on the heels of that bill crashing, um, President Obama creates 
Bears Ears National Monument. Um, and then subsequent to that, President Bush downsizes the monument. Now we can get into the details on that and the litigation and the management plan for the monument and all that, but I'm really bringing this around Emory County. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Congressman Curtis then introduces a bill that would essentially in a lot of ways down uh, codify President Trump's downsizing of the monument, right? Mm -hmm. So um, so I'm in, in Curtis's office meeting with them about that bill saying we really don't like this thing and mm -hmm. it sets a bad precedent and you know I'm a constituent and I represent this user community that you know this is a one of the most important things that um, we could do for our for um, southeastern Utah and for the outdoor community and we that eventually kind of morphed into this conversation all right well we're not going to agree on monuments in the Antiquities Act what can we agree on and Congressman Curtis had committed to Emory County to reintroduce that county's version of the public land initiative, but just as a standalone for that particular county, right? It would only deal with lands within that county, which includes some amazing rock climbing areas. You know, San Rafael swells in there. That's like the biggest also, one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that is, but it's also sometimes confused a little bit with a place called the San Rafael Reef, which is south of I-70, okay. and a place called the Sandstone Alps. Uh, lots of climbing there. That's just a little bit north of some of the really famous canyoneering little wild horse and places like that, north of Goblin Valley. Anyway, mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds of, of routes, multi-pitch routes, up to 1,000 feet tall on these big sandstone fins, actually. Mm -hmm. And then there's a number of other out, outlying uh, climbing areas and and then other um, other recreation areas and important um, things to the sort of outdoor alliance community writ large, like the um, Green River and Labyrinth Canyon, Muddy Creek, other places like that, right? And so what <clears throat> what we ended up doing is talking more and more about Emory County and how could we um, actually improve the language of that bill for the recreation. It was already a ton of conservation proposed in there. And in fact, I think in this bill that did pass, the Emory County piece was something like 60% of the newly designated wilderness. And that's the most wilderness that's been designated in a decade. So a huge win just from a conservation standpoint. Of course. But from a recreation standpoint, what was amazing for climbing was um, the Access Fund's long worked on this issue that relates to fixed anchors, bolts, in designated wilderness, yep. right? Oh, and yeah. it's, it's really complicated because each agency's got sort of their, their own set of regulations and process, both for areas that are proposed as wilderness or wilderness steady areas like on BLM lands. And then they've also got all different rules and processes for what's... Um, what is an appropriate amount of bolts in designated wilderness? Mm -hmm. Can you place new bolts? If so, how? Do you need prior authorization? Um, you know, power drills are illegal yep. uh, in designated wilderness. And so often in the past, we've been, we want to support conservation because that's in our mission. That's in our genes as climbers. You know, we support everything from the most industrial, you know, under the freeway bouldering area to the backcountry, pristine wilderness area, right? But it's complicated for us as advocates to, to support wilderness proposals when it's gonna be, when that wilderness is gonna be designated over the top of a high-use climbing area with lots of bolts, Yep. right? Mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you manage 
hundreds if not thousands of bolts without a power drill. I mean, realistically. Yeah, right? that's so, a lot of just human power to work. <laughs> yeah, and is that realistic? Is that you're going to do a good job? Are people really going to do that? I mean, so in the past, what we've been almost forced to do is ask uh, these the proponents of these new wilderness designations to just modify the boundaries. You know, we were like, we'd say, hey, we like the conservation piece of this, but if it's designated wilderness, we're going to have, you know, it's going to be a slow-moving train wreck in 30 years when these bolts time out. I mean, bolts are way better now, but like a lot of these were placed 20 years ago or Right, more. exactly. And so how are you going to deal with that? You're just going to ignore it? It, it's complicated. What we, so what we were able to co- uh, accomplish in the Emory County bill was not an exception for power drills because we still think the, uh, essentially the sanctity of, the, of what's in the Wilderness Act needs to be maintained and we don't want a slippery slope where we water it down so it doesn't mean anything. We still think, think the non-motorized prohibition is appropriate, but what we don't want to have happen is for new wilderness designations to be created over the top of high-use climbing areas and then have all those bolts be considered non-conforming. In other words, they could, the land managers could then issue land management plans that, or the removal of all these bolts. And we've seen that happen, right? And so mm-hmm. what essentially we're doing is we're asking Congress to grandfather in existing fixed anchors in areas of new wilderness designation. And that's what happened in the Emory County bill. And we were able to get most of the conservation community behind us on this. That was the big thing. Like Congressman Curtis's office was like, that sounds great, Access Fund. Um, Go get support for it and come back. Right, essentially is what they did. Same thing with Hatch's office. And we did that. We went out and there's a really good analogy in policy related to grazing infrastructure and wilderness designations, right? So there's precedent going back to the 80s for new wilderness designations that say, look, if there was, you know, because you're not supposed to, in wilderness, supposed to have installations either. You're not supposed to have roads. You're not supposed to have, you know, structures, man-made structures. But a user group or a multiple user like the grazing community, they're, you know, it's they're not supposed to have like corrals and water tanks because those would be considered installations like a cabin or you know an airstrip is kind of like the the um, legislative history of the wilderness Act flags those things as appropriate for wilderness right well so there's <clears throat> there's precedent in grazing that says hey if these things were there as a designation of the wilderness area Ranchers can keep their water tanks and their fences and their corrals, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so what we were, and those were user created, might have been created not as a non-conforming use as of, you know, when they were, when they were built, because they might have been built in a wilderness study area where they're not allowed or something, but they're not going to force ranchers to tear all that stuff down. So what we said was these anchors are like, the 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 cow corral over there in that maybe the density of these anchors shouldn't be allowed to proliferate now maybe there should just be a a more selective authorization process which is actually what the agencies have they've got we're actually working through a kind of a complicated thing now where it's really about the number of density and 
whether routes are bolt intensive, is that appropriate with owner's character and all that kind of stuff. That's a whole separate issue. Those are new bolts that are authorized in the future. What I'm talking about are all the places, and there are a lot of places in the country right now that are either proposed area, wilderness areas or wilderness study areas that could become wilderness that have got a density of anchors that could be a problem, right, going forward, that wouldn't be allowed if you were to, like, start from scratch in a wilderness area, right? Mm-hmm. And so what, what these things say is like, look, we're not going to require you to uh, rip out all these anchors. We're not going to micromanage the density of existing anchors because we are, you know, we are the ones, Congress, that created this new designation over the top of this pre-existing high-use recreation area. But anything going forward, including the replacement of these anchors, <clears throat> has to follow wilderness regulations, which means if you're going to place a new one, you, you might need prior authorization, which is likely going to be the case in most, <clears throat> excuse me, in most park service wilderness climbing areas, including the Yosemites of the world and Zion and places like that. But we're not going to um, require you to pull all these things out. And so that was, not only was that a big deal just for like Emory County and the hundreds and hundreds of climbs in the San Rafael Reef and the swell, San Rafael Swell area is really more like an Indian Creek style place. It's trad, but their anchors at the top to mm-hmm. get down, whereas the reef is more like bolt intensive, more red rock style in some ways. Gotcha. Not as good quality, but it's, you know, it's still, there's some really great stuff there too. Yeah. Um, so not only did it protect that place from a land manager coming in and saying, hey, we got to remove all these non conforming anchors, they, you know, they violate wilderness character. We have heard that more than one occasion in the past in some places. But it allows us as climbers to be more um, assertive in advocating for new wilderness designations without having to worry about our existing climbs being jeopardized, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. So when, when we start floating this idea and analogizing it to, uh, to the raising kind of exception, if, if you will, we did go and start shopping that around to some of our friends in the conservation community. And we got the Wilderness Society to support us. Yeah, that's my after, next question. Yep. After a lot of negotiating back and forth wordsmithing, and it was a really interesting time because they weren't supportive at the time of the Emory County Bill because they wanted, they wanted more designations. There were other problematic tribal issues and that eventually did get remedied and some other uh, mining issues that are problematic for them. So they didn't want to support the bill, but they liked our language. They wanted us on the team, so to speak, you mm-hmm. know? And so they actually supported the concept we were floating after we wordsmithed some provisions, and you can find it in the bill. And then we ended up eventually getting some other folks on board, like we got Pew Charitable Trust on board and a few other organizations that were, were in agreement. So we were able to say, okay, Curtis and Hatch, we got the conservation you know, some leaders in the conservation community that are um, accept this idea that we have and support it and want us, you know, want it to be more about people being part of that landscape and not just wilderness under the glass mm-hmm. in a museum. You know, there's a balance there, obviously. You don't want to impact wilderness character. But so that was, that was the real kind of tipping point where they were finally like, all right, access fund, we'll put your language in the bill. So we got it in the bill, and then 
it passed and it's law now and it's it's a really big win it's it's pretty amazing i'm still in some ways shocked that it even happened but kind of proof that it's going to be um much bigger than emory county is we're already in conversations about inserting that same language in other bills that are now going to be part of this congress <clears throat> that would designate new wilderness for example, in Northern California, Northern Coast, Congressman Huffman is introducing a bill there. We've already been in touch with staff there about, um, you know, in the past we would have been, well, can you just modify the boundary of your proposal so you don't, uh, you know, these 10 sport climbing areas yeah. are not included? Now they're like, no, we'll just, we'll put in the, we'll put in this language. Also a bill called the CORE Act in Colorado, yep. which you're probably familiar with. Very familiar would you know it's the old central mountains bill that, that jared polis was pushing and others before him mark udall before him um and then the san juan's piece in southwestern colorado um so now senator bennett congressman Nagoose are proposing that and we're having similar conversations about including that language in in those bills so um so we're really hopeful that this will you know, it's it's great for the climbing at Emory County, but it's going to be a bigger thing for climbers going forward, and and not only protect our climbing resources, um, the ones that exist, but also allow us to be more assertive advocates going forward for conservation. Where before we had to be a way more nuanced in this complicated way that didn't lend itself to action alerts. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So much to say. First of all, great work. That is that's excellent. Yeah, and I, I'm going to claim I, you know, there was tons of people working on this. Eric Murdoch, lots of other people. Of course, yeah. Involved in, uh, and, you know, other groups. You know, certainly we had folks like, you know, local organizations, Friends of the Lake Climbers Alliance, Alpine Club did some work on this. No, that, that's great. It's a very collaborative process and being able yeah. to just see see eye to eye with conservation groups because I know that there's, you know, could be friction between a recreation group and someone like you know the wilderness society but be able to be on the same page here i think that's this is going to set a great precedent moving forward be able to insert this language in other areas just like you said yeah um, and not just fall back on oh let's amend the boundaries here let's actually work <clears throat> with this language to make it work for everyone exactly that's, that's great um yeah. who is the primary land manager in emory county the Bureau of Land Management. BLM mostly? Yeah, mostly. Yeah, and uh, and that's by far, I mean, I'm going to make up the percentages here, but probably 80% of the lands affected by this bill yeah. were BLM. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, there's a fair amount of forest service on the west side of the state, like where Joe's Valley is and sure. all that, but, yep. uh, or west side of the county. But that oddly wasn't included in this bill. We tried to get something in there to protect and and have, you know, a vision for Joe going forward too, but it just didn't, it wasn't well baked enough at the time. And gotcha. so, and then there's state trust lands. So state in institutional trust land mm -hmm. association, SITLA owns a lot of land. And then there's a couple of like small state parks, Goblin Valley, stuff like that. So <clears throat> correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I know, like the national park service has DO 41 directors order 41 to meant to, address bolts in wilderness and the BLM and the forest service do not have something that clear for their agency. It's more just like agents or uh, district by district or 
field office by field office determining uh, bolts and motor. Is that accurate? Actually, the BLM was the first one out of the gate to, to come up with um, with some policies. Okay. So they, I worked with them in the aughts, 2000s, um, quite a bit because, <clears throat> you know, at that time there was much of the same concern related to Red Rocks and other places. Mm -hmm. And um, so they came out with a, let's call it an instruction manual, and <clears throat> that addressed this directly, that eventually evolved into um, the, a manual, basically, that they, that they use for... They've got a whole range of, of manuals and handbooks that deal with the management of everything that you can think of and you can't think of. Um, and you know, they've got wilderness study area management in there, and they've got wilderness area management, and they specifically have um, a section on fixed anchors, which basically says, you know, says a lot of things like we were talking about before, like qualitative, like, not, you know, no bolt intensive climbs, like sport climbs are not what um, are considered appropriate in wilderness. But the main kind of piece in there also was that the land manager may um, require prior authorization. We haven't seen that yet. You know, the, the area, you know, probably... Oh, 80% of BLM wilderness climbing in the country, not, not wilderness study area climbing, but just wilderness climbing, is Red Rocks outside of Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And they currently have a moratorium on any new anchors there. And we've been trying to get them to... And they've also got a problem because there's a ton of noncompliance on that, right? There's, <laughs> that prohibition's been in place since the early aughts mm -hmm. um, when it became designated wilderness, and they haven't changed their policy, and there's been plenty of new routes that have gone up and our argument has always been hey if you get a workable policy in here you're going to be able to control this this activity a lot better and they just haven't they haven't done it but um so where does this policy apply you know there's still a, a fair amount of climbing in wilderness areas BLM lands around the country too mm -hmm. um, but there's a ton more even in wilderness study areas especially in utah you think of like the west desert of utah and the Places like Notch Peak and, you know, there's stuff down in San Juan County. There's stuff around here, around Moab. Um, so, anyway, BLM's got a policy. Um, the park issued uh, a director's order on wilderness management, of which climbing was one very small piece, but very important to our community. And the, they've got, like, a what's called a reference manual that explains the director's orders and it didn't really roll out quite, it, it rolled out really um, inconsistently park to park. Mm -hmm. And so, and there were some problems with that. And it's not like we're saying every park's got to be cookie cutter exactly the same, but we also want, you know, sort of the whole point of having these policies is not to have individuals just make stuff up on the, on the fly or because of their per personal opinion. And in the park, that will be the requirement going forward. They could authorize, they, they will require prior authorization of new, any new anchors in wilderness. The bigger question is, what does that authorization look like? It could be what's called a programmatic authorization, which means you could do it just in a management plan. You could say this zone is open within these standards, like no sport climbs or, you know, not next to these sensitive resources or whatever. You could so you could do that pro pro programmatically through a plan. You could do that programmatically through what's called a compendium, which is a park-specific set of rules issued every year. That's what Yosemite's done more recently. Or you mm -hmm. could, 
require authorization on a case-by-case -case basis, like the uh, permit. And um, where it's kind of gone off the rails in our view is that some parks have just continued prohibition. And our, our argument is, look, you can have a prohibition, you just gotta have a reason for it. So let's have a process for it. And like, we can sell it to climbers if we can make a compelling argument that it's more than just your opinion, you know? Um, and because that's sort of what policy is about. It's about people, not, you know, about people writ large, about, not about individuals. Mm -hmm. And so um, anyway, we're, so we're trying to work through that with the Park Service, and that's an ongoing process. We have a lot of folks, other people involved in what we call the DO41 Coalition, and th those are folks like Wilderness Society, Al American Alpine Club, uh, National Parks Conservation Association, and others. And so we're working through that. Oddly enough, the Forest Service is the one that's got nothing. <laughs> and they were the ones that um, this whole thing kind of came to a head in the late 90s up in uh, Sawtooth of uh, Idaho, where basically, long story short, is they tried to issue a nationwide um, prohibition on bolting in wilderness. They got kind of smacked back by Congress and said that was an overreach, so they organized what's called a negotiated rulemaking committee where they brought together folks from the outdoor community, climate community, wilderness community, land management community, and others to come up with a set of rules about how this could work. Typically, you want to get consensus in those rulemaking committees, um, negotiated rulemaking committees. We didn't get consensus, but we got something like 20 out of 22 groups to agree on a set of principles. And those principles eventually is what became the Park Service's directors for one, more or less. Gotcha. Um, but the Forest Service has just been sitting on their hands. And if you were to add up all the wilderness climbing in the country, you know, the big names are the Yosemites and Zions, right? Mm -hmm. And those kind of places. But if you were to add up all the Sierra Nevada, all of the Cascades, all the Wind River Mountains, a ton of what's in, you know, Colorado and Arizona and on and on and on. The, definitely the majority of wilderness climbing and probably wilderness fixed anchors is on Forest Service land. Yep. And they still have done nothing. So I've been going into that office since 2001 and others before me saying, you know, look, you there's got to be a better way to do this. You can't just ignore this problem. We should address it with a policy that's similar to what was analyzed by the Forest Service decades ago now in the negotiated rulemaking process. And there's always a reason why they can't do it. They're dealing with some other thing that's more controversial, or more pressing, you know. I guess there's reason to think that they might address it somehow in the next year or two but we've kind of heard that before we've got a there's actually a new sort of director of wilderness at the forest service who's who's taken an interest in this she's a climber and um you know just kind of fresh set of eyes sometimes you can navigate things differently so yeah you know it's kind of you know it's it's a little bit of a contradiction because you know the climbing mentality and ethics has always been in the past kind of self regulation right freedom of the hills and all that and that's great um and we certainly want to protect those opportunities where they make sense sometimes 
the pendulum swings a little too far and we need to overcorrect. You know, you think about it, climbers are the only community can do, that can do what we, could, what we do in developing new recreation resources, climbing areas, without a permit, without an en environmental analysis. Like you can't build a new mountain biking trail. You can't build a new boat ramp. You can't do anything else. Like yeah, we've that. got it pretty good. We've got it really good. And yeah. I've been trying to argue to climbers, especially rod developers for a long time that, you know, we're kind of gone past this golden age of where you just go into the woods with your buddies and put up a, 10 roots on a cliff and have a great time. And then nobody's got any worries about it. Right. Cause People hear about it with the internet and just on and on and on. There's just a lot of ancillary imp impacts and other problems, right? Right. And um, and that's certainly true when it comes to fixed anchors. Like if you were to add up the amount of holes drilled with a power drill into a pu the public resource by climbers, it's kind of jaw-dropping, frankly. So what we're trying to do is balance this history and ethics of self-regulation and freedom of the hills and nobody breathing down your neck with maybe we need a few a little more structure in our than just self-regulation you know and so we're like trying to say to the agency especially the forest service look there's this slow motion train wreck coming it's obvious to anybody that sees the resource and knows the history that there you know we need to have some management there needs to be sideboards. Regulate us, Forest Service. You know, mm -hmm. it's not quite like that, but right. it's sort of in that same category of like, look, if there are rules that are clear that still are appropriate and allow for protecting climbing opportunities, but also give the land managers what they need to protect the resource, then that's much more of a win-win than if the pendulum goes too far, like there's overdevelopment of an area in a place where there's some sensitive lichen or endangered bird or something, cultural resource. Sure. You know, or, which happens a lot also, is mm -hmm. like a land manager comes in and overregulates because they're just following the precautionary principle and they don't want to be the one that's known as too permissive. Right. But they don't know anything about climbing because they came from a forest that was just national grasslands or something, you know? Yep. And that happens a lot. So... It's everybody's interest to have some clear policy about how to do this, not just in designated wilderness, but also in non-wilderness. Yeah, of course. And I mean, a multiple-use agency already demonstrated that they can get a wilderness policy in place. I mean, the BLM was the first one to do it, you said. And then the Park Service, like, yeah, I would hope that really soon the Forest Service can get something in place. And it sounds like we got a great ally in there with this uh this new wilderness manager uh, being a climber that's always very helpful yeah we'll uh we'll see if that i mean those guys are always got something else yeah. they need to deal with too but yeah we'll keep we'll keep trying we're not going to stop showing up that's oh, for part sure. of government relations you know <laughs> well, i tip my hat to you 18 years and you still haven't seen a conversation yeah. same one right yeah yeah well that's yeah it's quite the endurance run right there with that <clears throat> That concludes part one of my conversation with Jason. Thank you all for having a listen, and thanks to Jason and the rest of Access Fund's policy team. I'll have part two queued up for you all this time next week, so be sure to have a listen, check it out. You don't want to miss what Jason has to say about Bears Ears. So until then, you all enjoy the rest of your week, and I'll see you all next week.